Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a Boston chef on to talk about her journey to the top eight on this season of Tournament of Champions and why she loves European-style dining. But before we get to our guests, we just want to remind all of you that Food Network Obsessed has been nominated for a Webby Award. Our team is incredibly excited, but we need your help to win. So please click into the episode description and you'll see a link to vote. It would really mean a lot. All right, back to this week's guest. She is a James Beard award-winning chef, cookbook author, and a competitor on the latest season of Tournament of Champions. It's Karen Akunowitz. Karen, welcome to the podcast, and I want to first congratulate you on your successful run on Tournament of Champions, making it all the way to the final eight. How does it feel to have your run on the show out in public now? Uh, it's so exciting. I mean, it is such it was such a fun show. Um, it was such an exciting show to film and to kind of have it out in the world always feels like it makes it real. I always <laughs> feel that with filming anything you do, you do this thing and it's it's so big and it's so much fun. And you're like, OK, and I can't talk about it. And nobody knows that I did it. And it, you know, being out on television makes it actually feel real. And it's exciting. People are excited about it. People love Tournament of Champions and they're, you know, so invested in it. So it's it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to get back to all things TOC in a little bit, but I want to kind of dive into your career and get to know you a little bit more. Um, you've really bounced around the globe in terms of cuisines that you have mastered. You are a 2018 James Beard Foundation Award winner, the owner of two restaurants in Boston. But I also know you spent um, some time working as a sous chef in uh, Modena, Italy some time ago. Tell me a little bit about that experience. What events led up to that decision and why Italy? So I, I actually went there. I went there uh, for a stage, mm-hmm. um, which is an, basically an unpaid internship. And I had traveled to Italy when I was 
gosh, in my early twenties with a couple friends. And while we were there, we stayed with one of my friend's family that he had never, he had never met before. Mm. Um, and you know, a cousin and aunt put him in touch with somebody else and we just showed up <laughs> and these people that literally he had never met before came to the train station, picked us up, welcomed to the, us into their homes, took us to like family gatherings. And that piece of the culture, not just the food, not just the wine, which is all, I mean, amazing, but the piece of culture that was so welcoming, so familial, mm-hmm. um, that really stuck with me. And I knew at that point in time, I said, I really need to come here. and I need to live here someday. And so many, many years later, um, I was a young cook and I was a consultant for opening a, su- a consulting sous chef for opening a restaurant. And that kind of came to a close. And I thought, what am I going to do now? And I said, okay, I think it's, I think it's my time. And I had a little bit of money saved. I put all of my belongings in storage. I had my previous chef call a chef that he knew in Modena and that he had worked for years and years ago. And he said, yeah, she can come. I I don't have anywhere for her to stay, but yeah, she can come in and work (laughs) here for free. And a week before I was supposed to leave, I was like calling, I was like emailing, I was getting no email responses. I was calling, nobody's picking up the phone. I'm leaving voicemail. And then the voicemail is full. You can't leave any <laughs> voicemail. And I was like, I guess I'm still going, which is, you know, one of the the wonderful things about being young is that you're a little bit fearless, a little bit foolish, but you just are like, okay, I'm going to go. And I'm sure it'll be fine. I didn't speak any Italian except for the food words, mm-hmm. which I thought would be enough. <laughs> and I moved to an area that was, it was not, you know, super touristy or super populated. Like if you move to Rome or Firenze where, mm-hmm. where people speak English and I, I really got myself into something there, but I became incredibly lucky. I showed up and I remember showing up at the restaurant and there was a server there that spoke English. And I remember him yelling, Max, there's, there's an American girl here to see you. And he was like, Oh, Karen, you came. <laughs> and I was like, I'm yeah, here. because I was, remember we had that thing. You said I could come, you emailed me and I worked there <laughs> for a handful of months and he set me up with a pasta making stage. So I used to get up at like three 30 in the morning mm-hmm. and I go, used to go to a pasta PCO every morning and make pasta with little old ladies, this amazing tiny storefront, big pasta making area in the back. And I did that until a friend of mine there was leaving his job as a chef at a small Anateca to go work at La Francescana for Massimo. And he said, I need somebody to take my job. Would you take my job? And I hadn't been a chef at that point in time. It was a small place. It was 30 something seats. And what he didn't tell me was, you are not just the chef, you are the chef, you are the only person in the kitchen. Oh, So it was like a four burner electric stove. So I did all of the prep. I did all of the cooking. I did all, I, I cooked every single thing for service. I washed every dish. I made espresso for people when wow. the owner was doing something else. I mean, the only day there was more than two of us there were Saturday, uh, Fridays and Saturdays where there was like one person who helped and was a server. That was probably one of the most important, formative, challenging experiences that I've ever had. And I stayed there for about a year. And when I wasn't working, which was, I had a couple of weeks here and there where I traveled. Um, I was off on Sundays. So I traveled on Sundays, you know, and really just tried to get as much out of the experience as possible. It was amazing. Did you uh, end up learning Italian while you were there? I did because I had to. I literally have not been able to, to speak to anybody. So I came back fairly fluent in Italian, which is my Italian is not as good now. Um, I practice every time before I I go to Italy and it comes, it comes back to me. We were on, my spouse and I were on a truffle hunt and the 
gentleman that we were going with, it was a father and a son. And we showed up and the son spoke English and the father didn't. And they were breaking us up into two groups. And the son goes, you're going to go with my dad and you're going to translate everything for him <laughs> because he doesn't speak any English. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll do that. And, you know, when you're put in that position, it, it, it came back, it came back to me. It came it back comes- to me. I was, I was, I was impressed with myself, but yeah, I mean, I kind of didn't have a, have a choice. It was either that or just, you know, not communicate. It's amazing what you learn when you have to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds just like a completely, you know, life-changing experience. What do you think you learned during that time that you would not have if you had stayed stateside? You know, I mean, I, of course you learn about Italian cuisine, you learn about regionality, um, you learn about ingredients, but you really learn about, I mean, for me, you really learn about the culture. You understand what that means, which is something that I try and bring to both of my restaurants. Also, I think you learn a lot about yourself. If you are traveling solo, you're living in another country by yourself, you learn a lot about the person that you are. You learn a lot about perseverance. You learn a lot about the things that are important to you. And I think that not just as a chef, but as a human, I learned a great deal about myself that I I don't know if I wouldn't have otherwise, but I think it would have taken me a really long time. And it's a crash course in kind of getting to know yourself and being in really challenging, awkward situations and how you deal with that. Are there specific bites or meals, you know, that really stand out either, you know, while you were living there and working or, or during your travels that, that really, you know, when you think back on your, that time in your life really, really stand out? I mean, I spent a lot of time in Parma and Bologna, you know, I learned how to make Bolognese in Bologna. Wow. I mean, so, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, no big just deal. That. like you can just stop right there. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then somebody will come in and they'll, they'll tell me that my, my Bolognese is, doesn't have enough tomato sauce in it or that this isn't like a quote unquote. And I'm like, okay, well, I put a lot of work and effort into it. Agree to disagree. Right. Okay. You you got it. So there's supposed to be a very tomatoey, watery sauce. I I, I got it. But you know, that is, you know, for me, a a huge, a huge memory. I traveled to Naples um, and I spent some time there and that was, is one of my favorite places in the world. You know, I remember eating buffalo mozzarella for the first time. I remember, you know, those moments of having bites of those iconic foods that I would just try and really remind myself to be in that moment and remind myself how lucky I was to be sitting in that place, eating that food, having that experience. Pizza in Florence, Mm. (laughs) which is not, you know, the capital of pizza, but there's this tiny little place. It's like downstairs. You have to wait at five o'clock to try and get in. And, you know, it remains one of those experiences that like I'll keep in my, in my heart forever. You get one pizza for yourself. The pizzaiolo made it in the shape of a heart for me. I mean, like, yeah, I know it was really, (laughs) really too much, but you know, even just going out to eat by myself on a Sunday, like in the town I was living in, you know, I remember those moments and they truly were life-changing for me as a, as a person and as a chef. When you're thinking of, you know, every element of dining from preparation to actually enjoying the meal, what do you think that here in the States we could take notes on when it comes to European style dining? I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things. I think that portion size is probably Mm -hmm. one of the first things that comes to mind is that there is not always, but often an expectation that portions are huge or that pasta is very heavy. For me, that's almost never the case. I think our pasta dishes are, even the richer ones are incredibly light and it's four ounces of pasta. And, you know, it's maybe not for every meal you're eating in antipasti, a primi, a secondi, but but you could, Mm -hmm. and you could feel great at the end of the meal. You could have, you know, an espresso and be done, but you're not feeling like I am getting a plate of pasta and this is the only thing I'm eating because this is a huge portion and I'm going to 
feel like I have to fall asleep the minute I walked, walked out <laughs> of the door. You know, I think that is a, a big piece of it. And, and I think another piece of it is just the, the experience around having a meal together. I don't have TVs in any of my restaurants, which was definitely a choice. I physically in both spaces that I bought, I took the televisions out of the restaurants. Mm -hmm. I took eight TVs out of Barbell Bay, which is my second restaurant. Is that saying that I hate television? No, I will binge my shows like everybody else. <laughs> I want to watch the game like everybody else. But I do truly, and I, re I remain pretty clear about this, that when we're sitting down and we're having food together, we're sitting down, and we're having food together and we're talking and we're having an experience. And whether we're talking about the food or whether we're talking about our day, we're having that connection. And I really believe that we come together over food when you're having a good day, when you're having a bad day, when you are celebrating a new job, when somebody has passed away, when you're grieving, we come together over food. We meet at our favorite restaurant because we need comfort or whether we want to celebrate. We go to those places together. Food is a bridge in, mm -hmm. in many ways, in many situations. And so having that focus really be on the people that you're dining with and your companions and not having that distraction of anything else. I mean, you know, we all have cell phones and we all take pictures of our food. I do it too, <laughs> but just a little bit of a reminder of why we actually sit down and have a meal together and how important that is. Yeah, that's a, it's a very beautiful reminder for sure. Uh, what, what compelled you to eventually return back to the U.S. and, and specifically Boston? I was coming back. I had to come back for my sister's wedding. And I thought about my, my boss, the, the owner of the restaurant I worked at was like, well, you can go, but you, I, we would love for you to come back and we'll figure out how to sponsor you or, or, you know, do whatever it was. And at that point in time, I was talking to my old chef had told me that Anna Sortoon was looking for a sous chef at Oleana. And I, I was starting a conversation with her. I think Oleana is a really beautiful and special restaurant and was one of my favorite places in Boston. It just felt like my next move. And to be honest, I mean, I was so lucky to have the experience of, of living in Italy. And I thought about staying, you know, you're really far away from your family. You're really far away from your community. For me as a queer woman, I didn't have an LGBTQ community when I was living there. And that felt pretty isolating. I just felt like I would love to stay. I could stay for another year, but I, I felt enough reasons to compel me to come home. And if I hadn't already been going home for my sister's wedding. I might've stayed for another six months. I might've stayed for another year or longer, but that kind of, it was, it was my cutoff. It was my time. And as you mentioned, you came back, you, you did work at Oleana, which is, you know, focused on Middle Eastern flavors, farm to table approach. How are you able to grow as a chef while working and developing dishes that, that put spice at the forefront? It was such an important growth period and learning time for me. I worked with Anna Sortuna. I worked with Cassie Piuma, who now owns um, Sarma in Somerville. And they are both wildly talented chefs who are deeply invested in their craft and the food that they make and understanding, because a lot of people, and it, you see it more and more and more, where it's like, I'm throwing za'atar in this, I'm throwing sumac in this for whatever reason, but understanding those spices and those flavors and learning how to use them and how to use them properly and respectfully. I think that's a path. Um, I still use a lot of those flavors and ingredients in my cooking. Now I would never say the, the kind of cooking I do is, is fusion, but if I'm saying I'm making chicken and it's stuffed with a lemon rosemary butter, and we want to double down on that citrus flavor, we dust our chicken with sumac at the end mm. because it makes sense not because it's trendy or it sounds cool. 
you know, we use harissa in our braised lamb asabuco because we make a ginger gremolata and the harissa and the ginger and the lamb are all beautiful and perfect together, but it's, you know, a very decidedly Italian dish. So Mm. it's truly influenced my cooking and the way that I think about food and the way that I think about flavors. What about the the farm to table philosophy? How did, how did that influence how you approach the menu and how you have kind of evolved as a chef to to having your own restaurants now? I mean, I think that anytime you have a chef that when you are seeing food that comes from a farm, whether you are tasting it, I remember tasting celery when I worked there from Sienna Farms, which was um, Anna's husband's farm that's associated with the restaurant and being like, this is what celery tastes like. (laughs) It's like, it's it's a very clear moment for me being like, wow, this is, this is truly amazing. And learning how beautiful, having a lot of respect. And as chefs, we talk about this a lot. It's kind of like blah, 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 but having respect for the work it takes to grow food and the challenge within it and the weather and the, this and the, that, and what a difference it makes in the ingredients is pretty special. And to be connected, to work somewhere where you're connected to a farm in that way, where, you know, our walk-in would be completely full in the summer, you know, in the growing season, you would just walk in and it would be, you know, this high, you know, up to, up to your chest of farm product that you were now saying, okay, I have to come up with this dish, this dish, this, this dish to use, to use these ingredients. And how do you really make them shine? After that experience, uh, you actually went and worked for a nonprofit. Can you tell us more about the purpose of that organization and why at the time it appealed to you more than continuing, you know, your restaurant work? Yeah. um, Before I started cooking, um, my undergraduate degree was in family and community services with a minor in public health and a minor in women's studies. Mm. And I had contemplated getting my master's degree in social work before I went to culinary school instead. So I remember somebody sent me from, it was, you know, idealist or indeed or something, something like that, this job. And they said, well, if you combined what you thought you were going to do with what you were doing now, this would be the job for you. And I remember thinking, you know, I I think I was feeling a little bit burnt out. I think we're always, if we're introspective at all, we're always looking for more meaning and more purpose in our lives and what we're doing. And I thought, oh, this is, this is something that I could do in hopefully really help people. Um, I ran, I was a program supervisor for a group called UTech in Lowell, Mass. And I ran their culinary program and it was running a social enterprise. I was teaching young people to cook Mm. and we were running a catering business using youth in a workforce development program. The kids were, I'd say they were like 14 to 21, maybe 16 to 21. Um, And these were young people that were getting out of jail or getting out of gangs and we were also teaching them, like, how do you show up for work on time? How do you, you know, how do you shake somebody's hand? How do you behave appropriately at work? What are all these things that nobody's taught you before that you need to know to go into the workforce and then to graduate from this program and get a job? And I was there for close to a year. It was incredible. It was really incredibly hard work, very, very fulfilling. And I got to really combine two things that I love together. And, you know, another piece that it really taught me was I'd been in kitchens for such a long time. It was a great primer on how to run a business. It was a great primer for Excel and, you know, how to be a really great communicator over email and be in that sort of environment, which hadn't been necessary for me before I went into work. I cooked, I made the food, I ran service. And that was incredibly helpful, you know, for my next job and the the jump that I made after that. 
Uh, well, let's talk about that, because in 2011, you became executive chef at Myers and Chang, creating dishes inspired by Chinese, Taiwanese and Southeast Asian cuisine. I mean, after spending so much time focusing on Italian and also Middle Eastern foods, what was exciting about this particular path and this foray into Asian cuisine? I had been eating at Myers and Chang since they opened maybe two years before. And I just, I love the food. I thought it was so flavorful and so bright and so addictive. And I knew Christopher Myers from a previous job that I had had. And he, you know, texted me one day and he said, I know you've retired and you're out saving the world, <laughs> but I think it's time for you to come back to restaurants. Like, will you sit down with Joe and I and talk about, you know, coming and being our chef? And I was kind of like, I don't make Asian food. I don't really know. And he was like, okay, you know how to cook, come and talk to us. You know, I think one of the things was I loved the food to begin with, but I also think we had a lot of similar beliefs in, you know, how you treat people around you, how you run a kitchen, how you run a business, what are the things that are important and really important views on hospitality and what that means. I think we were all really symbiotic in, in those, in those things. And, you know, I was there for seven years. I became their managing partner at the restaurant. It was, you know, a hugely formative time in my career. And it really was the next step for me in, in terms of like figuring out who I was, who my food was, and really coming into my own as a chef. Yeah. I mean, seven years, you said it. How, how would you, time. How, yeah, especially the restaurant. <laughs> especially, well, especially these days, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, I have a, I have a sous chef right now that's like, oh, you know, we just promoted her and she's like, I don't know if I want to stay in kitchens anymore. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, okay, you know, and sometimes I think about it and I was like, I was a line cook for three years. I was a sous chef for four years. Um, I traveled for a year to another country and staged and, and worked, came back. And I worked in as a chef for somebody else for seven years. And I recognize that is not the path that folks take anymore. But like, whether you think it's like a paying your dues or whether I just think it's like getting the experience, like gaining the experience to really figure out who you are, what you want to say with your food, and then how you run a business. Because it's not just about how good your food is, right? What is your hospitality? What is your ethos around the restaurant? And how do you, do you understand how to read a PL? Do you understand how to keep your cost in line? You know, it's not the sexy part of restaurants, but it's really important if you would like to stay open. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's important. That's an important part of restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how would you describe how the restaurant evolved from day one to your last day, seven years later? We expanded. I mean, we were, we became so much busier. So we really took, it's a small space. And how do you take that space and do twice the volume that you were, you were doing seven years ago? And how do you retain staff? And, you know, I know that we expanded the menu a lot. And I know that, you know, my personal view on food really influenced the menu and the dishes that, that went on the menu. And you see kind of the influence from all of my, my previous training, mm -hmm. um, in, in the food there. So, you know, we grew from like the little kitchen that could to certainly having the potential to be a really bustling restaurant. Yeah. I, and you created a, a cookbook there as well. Myers and Chang at home recipes from the beloved Boston eatery. What was that experience like? That was an amazing experience. Um, Joanne had written, I don't remember, it was two or three cookbooks at that point. And she said, my editor wants me to write the Myers and Chang cookbook. I can't, I can't do that without you. And would you write the cookbook with me? And I thought, oh, yeah, I would love to. I'd love to write, but I don't know how to write a cookbook. So this will teach me how to do that. It's such an intense experience and recipe testing is so challenging. And 
you know, you, you write it for a year and then edit it. And it, it it's also something that teaches you a lot of patience because you're at least two years, if not more from start to finish to, to publication, if not three. And so working on something for a really long time and being like, yep, I'm working on that book, working on that book. <laughs> and in the end, it's, you know, something so tangible that you can be really proud of. And I, yeah, I still see people, you know, DM me all the time or post all the time on Instagram and say, I made your recipe for this last night. I made your recipe for that last night. And it's so cool to have that kind of like lasting impression. Um, I'm working on my next cookbook now, which will be out in 2023. Oh, congrats. And thank you. And I'm writing it alone. I'm not working with a writer. And my, my editor had said, when I turned in my, you know, my proposal, she was kind of like, did you write all of these headers? And I said, yeah, I wrote all the headers. I wrote all of the descriptions and the, the chapter forwards. And she was like, you're a really good writer. And I was like, oh, thanks. You know, and she's <laughs> like, you know, I think you can really, I think you can really write this on your own, which is a whole different challenge than, <laughs> <laughs> than working with a writer or working with something else. But what I do know is at the end of the day, it will be uniquely, it will be very much in my voice. No, I think that'll be uh, even more authentic than I'm sure it already had planned to be. I mean, when you think about all these influences, you know, from Italian to Middle Eastern to Asian, how would you describe your own personal cooking style? I think my style is craveable. Mm. I think it's always looking for that perfect bite. A good friend of mine described it once as modern grandma. <laughs> so instead of kind of looking at it from the like this global perspective or whatever it is, it's creating really craveable, delicious food that is, you know, I think evokes memories for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you you do that in both of your restaurants. In 2019, you opened Fox and Knife in South Boston, which was named Best New Restaurant in America by Food & Wine magazine that same year and obviously really inspired by your time in Italy. What was important to you when opening up that space? I mean, Fox & Knife is the restaurant that I've dreamed of for a really long time. It was definitely something that I had had in my heart. And I think people were really, <laughs> I know people were really surprised when I left Myers & Chang and did not open an Asian restaurant. They were like, she's opening an Italian restaurant? Because that was what I was most known for. Mm. And I said, you know, if you knew me, you would know that this makes perfect sense. This is something that, you know, I've studied that influences. If you look at my dishes anywhere that I had cooked, you see how influenced they are by Italian food and Italian cooking. I had dreamed about that for a very long time. And I knew when I found the space that that was what the restaurant was. And it's really homage to my time spent living there, the aperitivo culture in Italy and, and Modena and the food of Emilia Romagna. It's very personal. There are some things that are so traditional. There are some things that are traditional with the knowledge that we live in Boston in 2022. And so how does that, that influence your, your cooking or your food? But I think that we really bring the spirit of the culture to life. And I think that's something people can feel. I mean, one of the things that I hear all the time in reviews, in DMs, in emails is that people say they haven't tasted pasta like that. They haven't mm. tasted food like that since they were in Italy. And that for me is such, such a huge compliment. They are like, this is what cacio e pepe tasted like when I was in Rome. And I can't believe that, you know, you, you've been able to bring that here. So um, that for me is always such a such a huge compliment and reminds me that I'm, that I'm on the right track. When you think about, you know, when you're thinking about opening it, what what type of guests were you were you hope, hoping to draw into your your restaurant, your space? Everybody. Yeah, honestly, honestly, um, I think we really try hard to keep the food at a price point that is affordable. I think that we have wine on the menu that you can come in and you can spend 
$9 on a glass of wine, or you can spend $28 on a glass of wine. I think that the driving force for me was that it was a neighborhood restaurant Mm. and remembering always that it's a neighborhood restaurant. And if you really start getting, if you're outpricing yourself, if you are, I don't know, not welcoming in every way, if you're not making sure that your neighbors can always get into the restaurant, our, you know, our neighbors, people who live in the neighborhood have our general manager's phone number Mm. and email. And so we never want people in the neighborhood to feel like they they can't get into the restaurant. So we do our best in that respect. But just remembering that that is, you know, our little corner of the world and being committed to our community was in- incredibly important. And I mean, people really, we went into a space that like historically had not done that well into a neighborhood where there really wasn't anything else. And I just had to keep believing that if we did something that was delicious and we were the friendliest restaurant in town and our hospitality was genuine that people would come because those are all things that we all relate to. And, and they did come and you opened a they second. They did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Enough so that you opened a second restaurant in the in the same neighborhood, right? Bar Volpe last year. How, how is this concept different from the first restaurant? So Bar Volpe is a Southern Italian restaurant. So it really focuses on Sicily, Sardinia, Naples, Puglia. It focuses on the food of those regions. Um, So there's a lot of things that I couldn't or wouldn't put on the menu at Fox and the Knife because it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense, you know, if we're staying true to kind of our, I would say our North Star and what that is. And it's a much bigger space. It is more than twice the size of Fox and the Knife. Um, We have a glass walled pasta room in the middle of the restaurant. So you can watch folks making pasta. You can rent that room out. You can dine in the private glass walled pasta room. We have an aperitivo bar, a small bar in the back of the restaurant, which is also a market. So you can come in to the pastaficio and you can buy fresh pasta and sauces and wine, olive oil, spices, focaccia. We sold so much of that during the pandemic. It was like being able to have that little space in the restaurant was always part of our plan, even before the pandemic. And we got a lot of practice during the pandemic (laughs) (laughs) doing that, um, working on our fresh pasta program, which we turned into another business, which is Fox Pasta Company. But we just have the ability to play around with a lot of food and flavors that we wouldn't have otherwise. I'd, I'd like to think that the hospitality is, you know, the same. It's the same genuine, warm hospitality. And we focus on the same sort of mission statements but you, you are getting a different experience. And I have all the time people who've been coming to Fox, you know, for three years and now come to Bar Volpe people. I, I get both sides of the coin. They go, we love Bar Volpe, but Fox and the Knife, Fox and the Knife <laughs> really always be our favorite. And then we have other people that come in and say, we've loved Fox and the Knife for three years, but I don't know. I think this is my new, this is my new favorite place. We also have, um, we have a full bar at Bar Volpe. We have a 25 seat bar, you know, so if that's kind of your, your niche, mm-hmm. um, we have an amazing cocktail program, our head bartender is Seth Friedis and he has just done a, a fantastic job. We have a, we only have a beer, wine and cordial license at Fox in the Knife. Oh. Um, so we're able to really expand our cocktail program, which is really fun. We have 10 variations of Negronis on tap. On tap. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So, so there's a lot of things that we've been able to have a lot of fun with and, and really expand at Bar Volpe. Uh, I was curious. So I looked it up. Volpe means uh, Fox in Italian. So obviously that makes sense. Oh, but what what is the significance of a fox in your life? We now, I mean, now I have a lot of things. In well, I'm sure now. I have everything. If do you want a fox coffee mug? <laughs> I have twenty. Um, <laughs> I try and get people are coming to my house. Do you want this fox mug to take home with you? You know, we were trying to come up with the name for a fox in the knife, and we went through 
you know, a lot of, a lot of different thoughts. And for a restaurant that I had thought about for so long, you would think I would have had a name picked out, but I didn't. My spouse and I were, I think we were very tired, kind of in the throes of opening. We were eating pizza one night and we were doing like word association where you're just kind of playing around with things. And I don't, Fox came up and my spouse was like, Fox in the night. And we were laughing. I'm like, well, that's the most ridiculous name for a restaurant. <laughs> and Jay goes, no, Fox with the knife. You're the fox with the knife. Uh-huh. And we were like, haha, fox, fox and the knife. And we joked about it, but it just stuck. So we just started calling it, okay, I have to go over to Fox today and look at the construction or whatever it was. And at some point we were just like, I guess that that's the I guess that's the name, huh? Yeah. And we were like, Yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. So it doesn't make a, a whole is it a very Italian name? No, it is not. We actually came close to calling Fox and the Knife Bar Volpe after that and and ended up not doing it. And I, I think that the the two names have kind of perfectly for where they are. Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah. that, there's no turning back now. You're stuck with it for now. Uh, yeah, we're stuck. That's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Stick around because Karen talks all about her experience on Tournament of Champions when we come back. 
the first two seasons were 16 chefs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when they expanded to 32 chefs, I, you know, I think they were kind of reaching out and touching base with folks, you know, who, who they really felt fit the bill and would be a great addition to the show. I was kind of at a point where I was like, I don't really want to compete anymore. I've, <laughs> I've done a lot of competition cooking. I don't know that that's something that I want to do. And I had a zoom with Brian Lando and I was like, okay, yeah, you've, you've really convinced me that this is a great show and the people who are part of it are amazing. And, and that was truly my experience. It was such an amazing production to be a part of. It was an amazing group of chefs, really positive in so many ways. I had such a great experience doing it that I'm, I'm really glad that that's the, that's the decision that I made. It was pretty fantastic. How does TOC compare to other food competitions that you've done? It's really, it's really hard to <laughs> randomize. I mean, God, I mean, I, I've said it like a million times. They're like, what do you think is it? And I'm like, the randomizer, it's yep. so hard. Like who gets like ham and a frozen drink maker in there? I was like, really guys, come on. It's my first time. Um, <laughs> but the randomizer is so challenging. It really keeps you on your toes. You know, they are head to head challenges. So it's not like a lot of shows where it's like, okay, you're just fighting till the next round or fighting till it's head on, it's one-on-one. And so it's like win or lose. And I think that kind of makes it really different. It's they're one-offs. And I, I think that's, and they're fast, mm -hmm. right? It's like somewhere between 25 and 40 minutes. So it's like one and done. You're leaving everything. It's like coming in and leaving everything on the floor every single time that you cook. I think the biggest part about it is that it's blind tasting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no looking at you and saying, oh, I really like her. I know her cooking or I X, Y, and Z. You know, I think the blind tasting really levels the playing field. I think it's a pretty big move. And I think it is an, a really important part of what makes TOC so awesome. What do you think your strengths are as a competitor in these situations? Having so much experience in different cuisine, I think I can look at things in a lot of different ways and pull kind of from my repertoire. And I think that that's really helpful and blending flavors. I think that's really helpful as well. I don't know, but sometimes you're just like, ham, <laughs> what might I do? I, I don't know. Um, but I do think that's one of my, um, one of my strengths in competition. I think competition cooking is, it is definitely a sport. Yep. I think it's very different. It is incredibly different. I, I try and explain this to people as well. It's like, you can be the best chef in your restaurant. Competition cooking is a different animal. Um, and it is something that you have to train for. You can, I mean, I guess you can, or you can't, I, I did not train for this at all because I was in the middle of opening a new restaurant. <laughs> so I kind of was like, Oh yeah, I, I wish I would have been able to have a little more time to train before I went in, but it is a really special skill and, and competition cooking is, is completely different. And it is, it's awesome to watch, you know, people who are really good at it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the the most fun things about watching these battles is everybody is very good at it. And it is absolutely like watching a sport. <laughs> well, we have to talk about a, a major moment that happened to you during the season. You and Arthi Sampath uh, tied with 74 points. Your taste scores were also even. So it actually did come down to the randomizer category and you ultimately won. Not the way, obviously, you want to win something like that, but what was going through your head when you found out that first that there was a tie and then that you actually won? I mean, I thought we were going to have to cook again. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, okay. <laughs> all right, okay. But, you know, one of the things that they said was, you know, you, you go through, it's like taste randomizer presentation. And if presentation had been above the randomizer, then 
she would have won. But I think one of the things that was kind of drilled into us going into the show was like, the randomizer is really important. Make sure that you're utilizing those ingredients. Make sure you're utilizing them in an important way and a tangible way. And so I think that, you know, you're always thinking about it, but I think you've saw so many cooks, so many battles through TOC where it was like, it really just came down to like, we didn't feel like you, whether it's used the ingredient enough or really made the ingredient shine or used the piece of equipment in a meaningful way, mm-hmm. you really see how that came into play. So while I think so far it's been the only tie, you know, I think we saw that same sentiment kind of, come, we've seen it come out before and you realize how important it is to use the randomizer in a way that felt, you know, meaningful and could really be discerned. So no, I mean, nobody wants to win on a tie, but I'll take the win. Yeah, I'll take the I'll take the W every time. <laughs> Celebrate those wins, right? You have uh, to. Absolutely. You have to. I mean, speaking of which, when they once these you know competitions are televised, what's the what's the overall reaction from your community? Oh, people are just so excited. Like I said, TOC is for for only being on. This is the third season. It is a really uh, beloved show. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I remember watching the first season and I don't, I don't watch, uh, competition cooking shows. <laughs> I'll catch up on, on top chef, you know, at the end when it's all done and I can watch parts of it. And, mm-hmm. but I don't watch co- competition cooking shows. It's very stressful for me. <laughs> I, I, it, I feel the anxiety. I feel like I'm going through it, but I remember watching LJ and I watching, uh, the first season of tournament of champions and being like, wow, this, oh, this is really, this is really fun. This is really exciting. And I think that that feeling, that's what people feel. So folks are just, you know, so supportive. I mean, you know, our, my, my community has always been, I'm so lucky, so supportive of me and the restaurants. And every time I'm on television, you know, they're all like, well, you, you're robbed. You should have won. (laughs) Thanks guys. My mom says that to you. But it, it is really exciting. And I think that, you know, after two years of pandemic, so much crap, so much, so many mm-hmm. bad things, so many challenges, you know, it is much like the spring. It is something for people to look forward to. And people are really excited about it. Well, by the way, this this episode of the podcast is airing right before the season finale. So if you could describe the final episode, if you know what happens in one word, what would it be without giving away? Oh, epic. That's a perfect teaser for everybody to, to tune in to the finale this weekend. Um, by the way, before I let you go, I, I came across this note, which I thought was really awesome and a great way to kind of wrap up this conversation. 2016, you were named one of the 21 badass women changing the food world by Marie Claire magazine. What does being a badass woman mean to you? And how do you try to embody that every day? I think it just means that you are not just, but I think it means that you are paving the path for all the women next to you and behind you. That's what it means. It means creating opportunities for them. It means paving the way. It means shouldering some of the burden. It means taking the opportunities the the women before you have created for you and kind of blazing that path and bringing everybody with you. I think that's what it means. I love that. Well, we're going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final uh, question that we ask everybody here on the podcast. So rapid fire questions. Favorite movie that's set in Boston? The Town is pretty yeah, good. Yeah, that's yeah, a good one. It's a good one. Uh, favorite city in Italy? I love everywhere in Sicily. I'll say, I'll say Naples. I'll say Naples. It's, it's a pretty special. It's a pretty special place in a lot of ways. A uh, song you can't stop listening to? Dancing on My Own by Robin. Favorite quick weeknight meal? Elio Elio con pomodoro. Um, thin spaghetti 
tomato, olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper. Go to takeout order. It's probably sushi, salmon sashimi, tuna sashimi, miso soup, edamame. That's like my, our standard, like Tuesday night order. Love it. Guilty pleasure or vice? I don't believe that anything is a guilty pleasure. I mean, it's got to be pretty bad if it's, if it's a vice nachos, I'll make anything. My, my spouse is always like, you will, we could have like nothing in the fridge. You will turn anything into a nacho. <laughs> and like, it could be like, it's like, oh, these are seem to be goat cheese nachos with some like weird. And I'm like, every turn, I'll turn anything into a nacho. Uh, love that. <laughs> Favorite season. I'm a, I'm a summer girl. I'm a beach girl, an ocean girl. Yeah. Lobster summers in Maine. Yeah. That's my jam. Yes. Uh, advice you would give to your younger self. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's all going to work out. Decisions are commas, not periods. Ah, I love that. (laughs) I still give myself that advice. Sometimes sometimes (laughs) it works. (laughs) I know. Need that like written on a mirror somewhere. (laughs) All right. So our final question, we ask everybody the same question here on Food Network Obsessed and every answer is obviously different. So what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, you can time travel, regular travel, spend as much money as you want. Anybody can cook it for you. There are no rules. We just want to hear what you're eating for all meals in this day. My first would be Taylor egg and cheese, Taylor ham, egg and cheese, salt, pepper, ketchup on a hard roll. That's, um, that's I'm a Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. yeah 100%, 100%. Jersey girl. 100%. On you. Yeah. Can I tell you, I just was at, I was in New York for a couple of days. I was filming a bunch of stuff. And then I, my family is still in New Jersey and I was at my sister and brother-in-law's house. And he got up early. It was like a Thursday morning. So it's a weekday. It's not usually a bagel day for any. And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get bagels. He knows <laughs> I, I don't get them that often. He goes, do you want Taylor ham, egg and cheese? And I was like, I do want that. <laughs> he was salt, pepper, ketchup. I was like, of course, I, of course I do. I probably hadn't had one in, oh God, like two years or, or something like that. So that would definitely be my breakfast. Lunch would be whole steamed lobster. French fries from Georgetown Lobster, Five Islands Lobster in Georgetown, Maine, um, which is about 12 minutes from where my house is in Maine. It is my one of my favorite places in the mm. entire world. Picnic tables, you can bring your own, bring a bottle of rosé with you, stare out at the water. I mean, they boat right off of, right off the dock where you eat. And my spouse is always convinced. It's like we bought the house that we did because it was 12 minutes away from Five Islands Lobster. <laughs> And I was like, I don't see anything wrong with that. No, <laughs> so that might, so- that might be my, really, it's truly, and actually I wouldn't say French fries. I would say onion rings Ooh. because they, they hand cut and hand batter their onion rings uh. and they have, um, they make all of their own sauces. They make this like cilantro sauce. They make like a, a mustard dill sauce and they're so, so, so good. So if anyone goes to five islands, remember to get the, don't, don't, don't sleep on the onion rings. Okay. I love, by um, the way, I, <laughs> I'm, obs- I'm obsessed with onion rings and I think that they are far like underrepresented on a lot of venues. So I, I love, <laughs> and, and not always good. These are, these are so good. So if you, if you are in the area, you come, I'll, okay. t- I'll take you. Okay. Perfect. And dinner, I mean, I would, I would go to Italy and mm-hmm. I would go, I would probably go somewhere in the South. I'd probably go to Sicily. Um, I would eat a ton of seafood. I would eat fritti misti. I would eat, you know, spaghetti con ricci with, with, uh, spaghetti with uni, um, and, and kind of all of the really beautiful fresh seafood that's in the area. Mm. Yeah. That, that would be my, that I love would be it. my go-to. Any dessert or are you not a dessert person? I'm not, you know, I'm not that much of a 
I'm not that much of a dessert person. What do I love? I love maybe gelato. some gelato. Yeah, I, was, I, I like that's, that's my jam. I I'm saw that, like. I saw that on your story last. Night. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I am. That's my an, an affogato. Is, okay. Would be like for me perfect. like the perfect, perfect, perfect end end to the meal. All right. Well, that sounds perfect. It sounds uh, very, very Karen, you know, as we talked about Italy at the very top and we finished it off by talking about Italy as well. So very fitting. And thank you so much uh, for your time and sharing your story. And again, congrats on your TOC run. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. And I was I was really excited um, to be on the podcast. So thanks. An amazing job on TOC by Karen. And you can see how the rest of the season plays out on the finale this Sunday, April 17th at 8, 7 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. And don't forget to check out the link in this episode's description and vote for Food Network Obsessed to win a Webby. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.